Um, I'm glad to be able to talk with you again this morning. Um, I'm covering questions 59 through 70 in the Catechism, which cover the content that we would typically associate with the Atonement, with uh, which Dr. Adam Wood talked about um, in his sermon this morning, as well as the Resurrection. Um, and if you were here a couple weeks ago when I talked about the Incarnation and the Trinity, you'll remember that we talked about some heresies. I tried to say these are the sort of boundaries within which the church says statements about Christ and God need to be made. Um, unlike that discussion, there are no formal heretical teachings that have been condemned regarding uh, the atonement and the resurrection, other than you have to say that they happened. <laughs> in, in, in which case, the kind of work that I'll be doing uh, concerns more my attempt to make sense of the things that I see in scripture. Um, and most of them, I think, correlate really well to what Dr. Woods said uh, this morning in his sermon. And so you're not going to hear a point-by-point -point rebuttal of my good friend Adam. Uh, instead, <laughs> as much as I would love to do that, um, instead you'll see rather what I take to be some complimentary things and, and going deeper into some of the things that, that he did say. Um, I do want to address, before we get started, uh, a, a common refrain from the Anglican tradition regarding historical discussions of the atonement. And this is from uh, N.T. Wright, a biblical scholar. He wrote a book, I think it was probably seven or eight years ago now, um, called How God Became King. And Wright's big concern as a biblical scholar is to point out how in the early church some of the really important things that Christ did got overlooked. In particular, writes how God became king, says if we think about the Apostles' Creed, we jump straight from he became incarnate to he suffered and died and rose again and then ascended into heaven. Um, and Wright says that one of the problems is that in, in atonement talk in the church is that we've left out the mission of Christ. And I think in large part, the reason why, especially in evangelicalism, um, the, the mission and ministry of Christ has been left out of our discussions of the atonement is in large part because people have held to the kind of popular view that Dr. Wood described in his sermon today, where the big problem that Christ's work is supposed to address is primarily this racked up sin debt. And if the transaction that happens on the cross sort of levels the books, then that's what the atonement is supposed to do. And there's not much left to talk about what Christ's earthly ministry for us actually did. And so I want to point out that th this has been a concern in the past. And the kind of account that I'm going to try to draw on is going to attempt to make sense of why the stuff between Christmas and today, Palm Sunday, actually matters for how we think of what Christ did for us and for our salvation, as the creed says. Now, regarding the atonement in scripture, some have tried to look at scripture to find a, a quote-unquote model of the atonement um, in the Bible as if it's sort of like all the authors of the biblical text agreed on this is what the atonement was supposed to do. And then as we see the very witnesses of scripture talking about Christ's work, we have this sort of unified voice about what happened. I want to suggest, though, that as we look at Christ's atoning work in scripture, we're getting a multiplicity of attempts to describe what was happening on the cross in light of the Old Testament sacrificial system, as well as the different authors in scripture's attempts to specify what it meant for 
this one who was God incarnate, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die for our sins. And so rather than a model of the atonement, we're going to have lots of different images that I'm going to try to make sense of in different ways. So here's my plan. I'm going to discuss what I take to be some common errors regarding the atonement. That is some things that I would suggest we try to avoid saying about the atonement. Um, I'm going to try to make a few connections between the atonement and some other Christian doctrines, um, the ones that I talked about before, the Trinity and the Incarnation, as well as a few others. And then I'll conclude with a sketch of what I take to be um, a helpful way to talk about the atonement. Of course, I hope we have time after that for questions. And as I'm moving along, if you have questions during the presentation, feel free to stop me, and I'm, I'm happy to engage them. Um, I want to devote as much time as we can to your questions and concerns. And if we have time at the end, I have a few additional comments to make about um, the value of the atonement and reflections on the atonement and evil, if we have time for those. So I want to start out with um, what I'll call seven-ish things to say, things to avoid saying, that is, about the atonement. I have seven written down, but uh, I might think of another one. Um, first of all, one common error, and some of these errors are uh, in response to what I have heard from students about the way they think of the atonement um, and, and have made their way into what I've tried to tell my sons about the atonement. And so hopefully you'll find these beneficial. The first thing to say is that Christ's atoning work on the cross it does not make it possible for God to love you. So the thing that we should avoid saying is that God can love human beings because Jesus died. To the contrary, the atonement is the outworking of what it means for God to be love. That is, God's act of creating the world is an act of love. God's act of redeeming humans after their rebellion and estrangement from God itself is an act of love. And so it's not that God couldn't love human beings until this act was undertaken, but rather the way that we understand the atonement is an expression of what it means for God to be a being that is in fact love, as 1 John tells us. So we want to avoid saying that the cross makes it possible for God to love us. The second thing that I think we ought to avoid saying is that in, on the cross, the wrath of the Father is poured out on the Son. If you remember when I talked about the Trinity a few weeks ago, one of the things that I tried to specify is that in God's works in creation, the three triune persons are united in their work. There's no opposition in what is going on, and the, the early church had a fancy way of talking about this, but it's, this has made its way into some popular piety to say that we have the sort of loving son that was working his redemption for humanity and a wrathful father, and there's a conflict ensuing in the kind of cry of dereliction that we see um, both from our psalm today uh, and that made its way into Dr. Wood's sermon. To the contrary, if God is loving, then Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are loving. And if God is wrathful, then Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are wrathful. And so any kind of act that we see on the basis of God acting for us is a united work of the triune God. There's no opposition in the Trinity, and it would be a mistake to think so. The third thing I'll say is that it would be a mistake to think that God could not have forgiven human sin, so we should avoid saying that. And Dr. Wood helpfully brought this point to bear in his sermon. Um, there's a kind of 
uh, popular idea that frequently I encounter that suggests that the only way for God to have reconciled humanity to himself was the cross. And that there was some kind of necessity that was brought about by human sin that compelled God, because he is love, to act on our behalf in the cross. To the contrary, as God is a being that is not obligated to other beings, God is of course obligated to the moral law that consists in his being, but in having no obligations to other being, there, beings, there would be no injustice had God chosen to forgive sin. Some people worry that that sort of demeans the cross. It does raise questions about why the cross, right? If, if God could have simply forgiven human sin and remain just, then why this particular way? And I, I tend to agree with exactly what Dr. Wood said, citing Eleanor Stump, who suggests that this way that God redeemed humanity, this way that God reconciled humans to himself, is precisely the best way that it could have happened, or a way that some theologians have described it as a fitting way. Given the sacrificial system, given the nature of God, these things help us understand who God is better. There's no necessity in God's part that it was undertaken this way, but as far as for us, for helping us to learn who God is and helping us to love God better, this was the best way for God to redeem humans. The fourth thing that I want to avoid saying is that Jesus was guilty for my sins. This rests on a kind of foundational moral claim about what I take to be moral responsibility. Um, so when my son Theodore hits his brother Thomas, Theodore is responsible for his action of hitting Thomas. And there needs to be some kind of right, righting the wrong that was made. And it would be unjust for me to punish Thomas for something that Theodore did to his brother. That is, we're guilty for the kinds of actions that we ourselves undertake. Christ, as the passage that was read this morning, was acknowledged to be completely innocent, not guilty, and yet punished for the sins that we had committed. And so we're going to try to think about how that punishment works, but it's wrong to think that guilt can be passed around that you can be guilty of someone else's action besides yours, or that Christ could be guilty for some action that, that wasn't his. He was the sinless lamb of God who was, in fact, innocent in his death. The fifth thing that I think we should avoid saying uh, follows from some of the things, again, that Dr. Wood helpfully described in his sermon, namely that we have a God that is both forgiving and merciful. If we have some kind of account of the atonement that makes it impossible for us to say what it exactly it was that God was forgiving or how exactly God's actions towards us are merciful, we've undercut some true things to say about God. If there's anything that scripture is clear on, it's that God is the one who forgives the sin. And a debt that is undertaken and um, uh, the debt collector that collects his debt with no mercy or forgiving of the debt is not the kind of picture that we have of the God of scripture who's forgiving and merciful. The sixth thing that I would want to avoid saying is that because of what I said previously about Jesus being God, some have suggested that we don't really have Christ suffering on the cross because after all, God doesn't suffer and Jesus is God. And so it might follow that like this, there was no actual suffering being undertaken on the cross. To the contrary, the church is univocal in its voice in saying that Jesus Christ fully suffered as a human 
despite the fact that he was still God. That is, despite the fact that he was fully God and was one with the divine nature, this in his humanity, by virtue of the incarnation, Christ was now able to suffer as a human, to experience all the kinds of human ranges of emotions that we experience while yet remaining God. And that that suffering wasn't something that happened according to his divine nature, but was something that happened according to his human nature. So we definitely want to avoid saying God didn't suffer in Christ's atoning work. The seventh thing that I think we ought to avoid saying, and this follows from some of the claims in the catechism regarding what Christ's work means for you. The thing that I would want to avoid saying is that Christ's death in any way was limited in its scope. That, it, that is, that it wasn't for all people. This is, uh, I take it, it's somewhat controversial after the Reformation given the doctrine of the so-called limited atonement. Some have worried that to be Augustinian, that is to say that our wills are fallen and we have the same kind of corruption that Adam did, and to avoid any idea that we save ourselves, that the action has to be fully on God's part in saving us, that humans can't save themselves, and that's absolutely true. But it doesn't follow from that, I don't think, that we need to say that Christ's death was limited only to those that God will in fact save. We need a way of making sense of Christ's work being for everyone and individuals by God's grace having the ability to accept or reject the offer of salvation. And I think that's seven, so I'll stop there. Um, is there anything I can clarify about those seven things or things to address before I move into the atonement and other doctrines? Questions that those points raise? Go ahead, yeah. I think these are just yes, no, so I'll go quick. Okay. Oh, so I don't mean to say we should choose between wrath and love. I, I, I would suggest that um, God's love is experienced as wrath towards those who are not loving God. So divine love looks like wrath towards those who are outside of the divine love because we're not loving the things that we ought to love. Um, on whether what happened was the best way for God to redeem humanity, mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not confident in my abilities to find a, a better way. <laughs> um, <laughs> there might be someone who could. Well, so here's a problem. Like, uh, everyone has the intuition that, like, Christ, the atonement would have been compromised had, while Christ was doing his carpentry work, he, like, hit his finger with a hammer. And that counted as, like, the atoning work of God for all humanity. So, too, do we think that had Christ died like a normal human death, there would have been something lacking about what God is like revealed in the atonement that we get by seeing the way that God actually did these things. And so I'm pretty confident that uh, the concept of fittingness or the best way for these things to be undertaken, uh, it would be hard to find a better way. Oh, yeah, that's exactly, that is exactly right. Yeah, I would agree. Okay. All right. And finally, um, the, the notion that I can't be guilty of another sin makes less sense to me as I go. Okay. I, you know, when I watch right. the news, I used to feel very smug and self-sufficient watching all the bad things others do. It doesn't work any longer. 
So I, I think uh, guilty and responsible here would be distinct categories. That is, there, there's a sense to which one could be responsible and not guilty um, if guilt is like a moral concept. So uh, for instance, like imagine two, imagine two people who hold racist ideas. One that was born into a family that had like a long historical racial prejudice and the other that did not. Uh, and this person that grew up in the family that did not continually exhibit racial prejudice when encountered with it, uh, embraced it, um, decided to him, him or herself to enact racial prejudice. That person I think would be responsible for their racial prejudice as, and also guilty for it in a specific way. The person who was in the racially prejudiced family um, might still be guilty for their racial prejudice but would hold less responsibility over it in some ways because of the, the, the culture that one existed in. So, so I, I think there's a distinction between responsibility and culpability or um, guilt in the sense that I would want to maintain. Other things? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. As Anglicans, do we believe in penal substitutionary atonement, right? Or uh, yeah. Yeah. So there. So um, there's no. Yeah. So the question was. The question was. Um, there seemed to be in the seven things that I was working through a nod uh, a a rejection of penal substitution uh, as an account. The question was, what account of the atonement do Anglicans hold to? Um, I don't think there's an official Anglican teaching on this, so you certainly could hold to penal substitution if you're an Anglican. The things that I said would make it hard to hold to penal substitution, in which case, I think that some kind of satisfaction account, this, the account that Dr. Wood gave this morning, many refer to as the vicarious satisfaction account. Um, and I'll talk more about why I think that is preferable um, and, and how it relates to what we say about original sin as well. So I think that for those who have embraced a kind of penal substitution account of atonement where Christ not only bears the penalty for our sin, but in some ways it is counted guilty for that as well, um, ends up, I think, truncating what we need to say to N.T. Wright's point about how Christ's work not only solves the sin problem, but also heals our nature, brings us into relationship with God, enables us to live a moral life, uh, and so on and so forth. And so I think that, in my view, the penal substitution view has some problems. Um, but it's not like outside of the bounds of Anglican orthodoxy. Yeah. Does, uh, does the atonement cover more than, than just uh, human sin? That's what we call sin. So sometimes we talk about the brokenness of, of the whole world, uh, the creation groans. And is that part of God's atonement? How does that work? The question was Does the atonement cover more than, than human beings? Um, I saw a, a serious theological work 
uh, that was just recently published asking if the Eucharist was also for aliens. <laughs> and they were using, did you see this, Dr. Wood? This is, they were using Thomas Aquinas to ask this question. Um, and there was like a serious dialogue going on about this. Um, I tend to think that the, the incarnation and atonement were certainly, um, had effects beyond humanity. Um, like if we're gonna make sense of what Christ's death made possible for all things yearning for the consummation of the resurrection, then I, I think it certainly has to. It puts to right more than human sin. Um, but the extent to which that happens, whether like whether like animals, for instance, participate in this, I'm not sure. Yeah. Go ahead, Rich. I'm, I'm working with the same question that Steve has. I'm in Ephesians 3. Okay. Yeah. But with the heavenlies as well, because it's so serious. Especially if I read Revelations as well, there's a battle going on in heaven, and this has an effect on what happens uh, in the cosmos rather than just on earth. So. Yeah. Um, one of the early accounts of the atonement in church history was, was called the ransom view. Um, and on this view, let's see if I can recall it rightly. It, Something like this happens. Um, so humans sell themselves into slavery to the devil at the fall. Um, and God makes a kind of deal with Satan. God is like, if, if I send my only son to redeem humanity, can I ransom what is now rightfully yours, Satan? Satan takes the offer, and God sends the person of Christ who suffers death and dies but unbeknownst to Satan, there's this thing called the resurrection, where not only did God get back what had been owned by Satan in the fall, but now the resurrection sort of hoodwinks the devil, and his plans were foiled, and now it's rightly God's. Um, so there, there, there have been, in the past, attempts by the church to think about the relationship between God and the devil and what the atonement does. But it, I think that particular view has some problems. On the one hand, you have God engaging in a kind of like deceptive work, which seems problematic. Uh, it seems also that it's that by virtue of falling in, in sin, the devil has no claim over humans just by virtue of that fall. And so I don't think that like in our fall, we like now have this sort of, it's not like God and Satan are like dual forces of evil fighting it out from all eternity. The, the devil is a fallen angel and has no authority over God to make that kind of claim. So I certainly think there's, a, there's precedent in church history and good reasons to think that whatever the problem was in the celestial realm that happened at the fall, the atonement deals with that. 
Um, but we would need to be careful in how we parse that out in terms of what kind of more what kind of authority the devil has over humans and and how the atonement works in that way. And, and then so then there's another um, perplexing question that your question raises, Rich, concerning. Um, concerning whether the incarnation is taken to be a solution to the fall or God's plans from all eternity. I tend to hold to the latter. This latter view suggests that even if, counter what actually happened, humans had not fallen into sin, we would still be in need of an incarnate redeemer to unite humanity to God. Which makes me think that when we think of what the incarnation did, as say like Athanasius talks about in his work on the incarnation, the incarnate work of Christ, assuming human nature, is, is doing some healing. It's doing some work in God um, taking humanity to its fuller purposes as God always intended. So that view also helps us think about, when we think about what Christ's work is doing, um, there's a fuller picture than just solving the sin problem, which, yes, it is, but that's not it. And, in fact, had there not been a sin problem, we'd still be in need of this union with God because of our finite human natures. Yeah? So, uh, in the Nicene Creed, the Catholics will say that Christ descended into hell. And uh, there is the Apostles. Yeah, in the Apostles' Creed, right? That's a great question. Um, Can you repeat the question? Yeah, the, the Apostles' Creed talks about Christ descending to, the, to hell, some say to the dead. Um, and so there's a question of what this, what this work is doing. Um, I taught Aquinas' view on this like four years ago, so I'm going to try to remember what he says, but I can't vouch for the complete accuracy of this. Um, primarily what happened is that Christ descended to the dead to proclaim liberation to those who had believed in a redeemer to come, but had not yet experienced Christ-saving benefits. So there are all these people who are in hell, like for instance, uh, those who, well, I won't get into that. So, so whoever is, is in this place awaiting eternal judgment, Christ's work, Freeze those people who had previously believed. It's not like a, at least on Aquinas' account, it's not Christ descends to hell to make everyone who had been there not there, but rather for the particular set of people who had a pro, kind of proleptic faith. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how all of that works. Okay. But I'm, this is like how what the, the descent to the dead has been. Um, in, the, in the Reformation, though, this gets interpreted and in, say like, and maybe Deacon Mary can help me. She probably knows Calvin better than I do. Uh, but he says something like, the descent to the dead is metaphorical language to talk about the kind of suffering that Christ has. You have a Protestant tradition that's less happy talking about a like, literal descent to hell. Our catechism actually addresses that question. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. Oliver O'Donovan? Oliver, yes, Oliver O'Donovan. He's written an excellent book on the 39 articles. But I think also help you understand traditional Anglican thought. Yeah. Other questions or should I move on? Yeah. The deepening sin. Yeah. That was almost going to be one at number eight of something I said, but I decided not to go there. Um, thanks for bringing it up, Laura. <laughs> uh, I, I, take, I take that to mean that Christ became the sin offering for us. Um, and not, like, sin is not like a, like a, like think of the Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim is walking around with the burden on his back. Um, I think frequently we like to think of sin as if that's really what sin is. It's like this thing that's transferable, that can be credited to our account or Christ's account or whatever. But sin is, is not that kind of metaphysical thing. At least on the accounts that I'm working with, sin is turning away from the good to nothingness. Um, and so to say that Christ became sin means simply that in identifying with humanity, by having a human nature, by suffering death, by experiencing this kind of passion. Christ experienced the fullness of what it was to be human and that God takes this to be a sufficient sacrifice for redeeming humans. So that, that's how I interpret it at least. Let me say a few other things and then there might be a couple questions. So um, I'm gonna skip a couple things. I, I wanna say, that the way that we understand original sin affects the way that we talk about the atonement. So original sin uh, has consisted in discussions in theology of two components, um, and there's debate about the second one. Everyone agrees that original sin involves some kind of corruption. That is, from being born as a human before you willfully decided ever to sin, you were born into a condition and with a condition that makes it the case that you will inevitably sin. That is, you have a proclivity, a corruption of nature, something that will always result in sin. Some in the Augustinian tradition have wanted to say that not only does original sin consist in this kind of corruption of nature, but it also consists in guilt for Adam's sin. And so you can see how the tradition that wants to say that not only are you corrupt by Adam's sin, but also guilty for the thing that Adam did, is going to affect what you say about what Christ's work does. So for instance, if you think that original sin consists in not only the corruption that Christ heals, but also guilt, then you're going to be more inclined to a kind of penal substitution account where Christ is paying the, the, the penalty by virtue of becoming the guilty one for human beings. Um, 
And there are lots of debates about how exact, which of these views of original sin is right. But for our purposes, I want at least to point out that the way that you think about original sin affects the atonement. And in particular, um, this has caused some theologians in the modern period to say that rather than start with original sin and like work out an account of the atonement that solves that problem, we should look at the New Testament and see what Christ's work did and like formulate account of salvation first and then fit original sin into that picture. Um, and so that's a, a com more common view, which has led, I think, for instance, um, famously in like Gustav Alain's account of Christ's victory over sin, um, more accounts of the Eucharist that talk about how God's grace is communicated to individuals to help us live the kind of life that, that Christ did, or more what are often referred to as moral exemplar kinds of theories. Um, those end up saying that we need to take into account Christ's work for us in his mission and not merely the, the sin stuff. I also think how we, how we think about God is going to shape the way that we view the atonement as well. Um, is God the sort of angry IRS accountant that's making sure that you did all the numbers on your tax form right and that like the divine book of justice works out? Or is God a loving parent who wants to live in relationship with us and for us to do the things that are good, not only for his benefit, but for ours and for others, and therefore undertakes a kind of correction that's going to be best for us to live a kind of moral life and a life in relationship with God and others. So what happens in the atonement? Um, well, as I see it, the problem is twofold. It's alienation and estrangement from God in turning away from God to ourselves. That is, the problem is a problem of past sin, and it's a problem of future sin. So when we think about the atonement, the solution, we see God satisfying the debt that was owed for our past sin, but it doesn't stop there. Christ's death, yes, removes the, the debt of punishment, since for God, the problem of sin is not like this abstract moral debt between like God and human nature. It's not a problem in God. The problem is that we are alienated from God, and God, as the God of love, wants to make it the case that we're no longer alienated from God. And so satisfaction turns out to be a just way for someone who didn't commit a wrong, Jesus, to be able to bear the, uh, the penalty of another. Um, so think of it like this. If I commit a crime and I'm sentenced to seven years in prison, it would be immoral for someone else to serve the sentence. But if I had some parking fines and was unable to pay the tickets myself, someone else could pay them and there would not be any injustice. And so I think the kind of sacrifice we see with Christ is the latter kind. There's a penalty that is owed and God counts Christ's work to be sufficient to pay that penalty without it being any kind of injustice. But that's just the past problem. What about the problem of future sin? How does Christ's work relate to that? Well, I take it that human nature is healed by Jesus's uniting us to God in the incarnation and in living a perfect moral life that was wholly and dedicated to God, wholly and fully dedicated to God's purposes. He's the second Adam. And our natures become healed at least in two ways, the first of which is the sacraments. Um, especially the Eucharist, by which a divine grace is communicated to us to help us live a moral life. And also, I think, a kind of transformation of human consciousness and Christ giving us the ability to live a moral life 
through the kinds of practices that are carried on in the church. In other words, if a key problem in humanity is not just our active rebellion from God, but our kind of passive God forgetfulness, yes, we do lots of wrong things, but we also don't live the kind of fully God-centered life that Jesus did. And so there's a problem that is God forgetfulness that Christ's work itself is helping us to overcome, a problem in human nature that the incarnate mediator in his person and work undertakes for us. Okay, further questions about any content there or things that follow from it before I conclude with one final point. Anything else? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, th I think that that's what a moral life is. So, like, merely doing moral things is not a moral transformation. It has to be an action that is done for the right reasons, in the right amounts, proceeding from our transformed character, something that we don't do accidentally. Um, and so I just have a bigger picture of what moral transformation is than I gave money to the poor or something like that. If I hated doing it, it wasn't moral. Yeah, I, I think I agree with Lewis. Oh, good. I'm glad. I was banking on you talking about union with Christ, Mary, so I, I, I didn't talk about that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there are lots of different views about that. Um, the, the traditional view suggests that those, um, like infants, for instance. Infants, compromised. Yeah, I, I think that my understanding of like divine love and justice here is going to punt to God's knowing what is the best way to handle um, I, I certainly hope that it's the case that persons who are cognitively disabled are not punished for being cognitively disabled, nor do I think that God is the kind of being that would punish those persons who are unable. We might also think of, um, uh, I'll leave it at that. Rich, go ahead. Yeah. And one doctrine that is really important here is resurrection. And yes. You also tie atonement to resurrection in a very brief way because I know you're coming to the end. Yeah, well, um, if the resurrection doesn't happen, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, our, our faith is in vain um, because none of the work matters if the resurrection doesn't happen. Christ is still dead. We're still, he says, in our sins. And so I take it that the resurrection is um, God raising Christ from the dead is the final exclamation on the work of Christ 
to make it possible for him to ascend to the Father's right hand as the, the reigning king. Um, and so without the resurrection, none of Christ's work makes any difference, which is why it's like the linchpin of the Christian faith. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the let's see, the, the catechism I know says I mean it's very clear, for instance, the the question forty seven, what are the consequences of sin? Because of sin, those apart from Christ are spiritually dead, separated from God under his righteous condemnation without hope. Um, there might be someone who can give an account of that without holding to the Augustinian account of original sin. Um, the, I don't remember what the articles say about original sin in particular. I suspect they say something about it. Um, and, and so, whether you, yeah, whether you buy like the metaphysical apparatus of Augustine, I think I don't think commit, commits you to like rejecting the kinds of things that you would need to say to make sense of what what's meant by original sin. Anything else? So here's my conclusion, a conclusion that I think we often miss, a conclusion that I, as a theologian, and am often guilty of. The atonement is supposed to help us know that God loves us. Um, and for me, that's really important. I, I am inclined to figure out all the problems, to try to come up with something that makes like coherent sense. But in Christ's work, God, the creator of all things, tells us that we are beings that are loved. And for me, that's the crux of what the atonement is, that God would go to great lengths to experience our plight. And in some way that is really challenging to figure out, makes our plight better. And not just our plight, but the plight of all creation that groans in the expectation that we await at the resurrection. So that's an often overlooked point, but I think it's the point to take away from what we see in Christ's work. 12.15, right on time. <laughs> Thanks for your attention.